the Holy Gospel according to St. John. Glory to you, O Lord. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. This Lent, the Old Testament readings have walked us through the five major Old Testament covenants, a covenant being a relationship that is established based on promises that two parties make to each other. Marriage, I mentioned to you two weeks ago, as an example of a covenant relationship, as each party promises to the other something like, I take you to be my wedded wife, my wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death parts us, and to that end I promise you my faithfulness. Two weeks ago we read about the covenant established between God and Moses and the children of Israel at Mount Sinai where God, having delivered them from slavery in Egypt, now promises ever to be their God and they in turn make their promises. We will have no other gods. We will not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. We will remember the Sabbath day. We will honor our father and our mother. We will not kill. We will not commit adultery. We will not steal. We will not bear false witness. We will not covet. In the history of covenants in the Old Testament between God and God's beloved, the party of the second part had a long and reliable track record of agreeing to the covenant and committing to its terms only then again and again to break their promises, thus breaking the covenant, which, to be clear, doesn't mean that they ever stopped being the people of God whom God had chosen as God's own, because God ever keeps God's promises. But with the covenant broken, the relationship was no longer the relationship it was by God intended to be. Jeremiah this morning likened it to a marriage 
in which the party of the first part, God, still loves the party of the second part. And the party of the second part, the people still profess to love God, except not only have they been unfaithful, they continue to be. For centuries, the marriage counselors for God and God's people who had strayed and betrayed, who had had affairs with other gods in many cases, were the prophets, none of whom, let's be clear, came from any sort of a let's get in touch with our feelings kind of school of major marriage therapy, but came rather from a position of tough love, telling the people again and again and then again and again that being loved doesn't change the fact that unfaithfulness Sin has consequences. According to those prophets, one of those consequences, the most devastating of all, was when the Babylonians, under the banner of their gods, conquered and destroyed Jerusalem and its city walls and its temple for Yahweh, the Lord God, who, when they were faithful, Israel knew to be the one and only God there is. The Babylonians then took the best and brightest of those Jews who had survived the destruction and the slaughter back to Babylon and in chains and is in Egypt back to bondage. That lowest of low moments in the post-Egypt Old Testament is known as the Babylonian exile. In Babylon, the exiles lamented, among other things, the sins of their forebears, whose guilt had caused this situation. They blamed their parents, in other words, for the divorce and for the suffering that followed it. And they weren't wrong. But they also weren't themselves entirely blameless. For they... And their history would never stop proving it. They, at the end of the day, were in so many ways their children's children, their parents' children. They were the same people that their ancestors had been. That is to say, they were people who, left to their own desires, had themselves in the past and would again in the future break the covenant relationship by breaking the covenant's laws too. Which, of course, is to say that they were like us. Which, of course, is to say that they were sinners who were never, ever completely able to leave their sinning completely behind. In that moment, the prophet Jeremiah, who had been haranguing them about their sin and their unfaithfulness for years, now in this dark time lifts up one of the most powerful and profound promises in the Old Testament for sure, but arguably in all of Scripture. Note to self, God's promises never shine more brightly than they do when it's dark. The specific promise Jeremiah shines upon the dark time of the exile is the promise that since God throughout history has been the one and only one able faithfully to keep the terms of the covenant relationship that God desires, God, Jeremiah says now, will be the one who fulfills all of the promises, the covenant relationship requires, be they the promises of the party of the first part or the promises of the party of the second part. Jeremiah 31. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. 
It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah says that God says that the root of the covenant-breaking problem is deeper than God's people's covenant-breaking actions. The root of the problem, rather, is in the heart. For actions are ultimately fruits born of the condition of the heart. Somebody else, I don't remember who, said a similar thing this way. The biblical understanding is not that we are sinners because we did some sinful thing. The biblical understanding, rather, is that we do sinful things because we are sinners. And being sinners, our hearts are what they are. And what they are fully capable, what they are, are fully capable of conceiving of and meditating upon and planning and accomplishing beautiful and profound and holy things, but oftentimes too in the blink of an eye, or maybe I should say in a heartbeat, conceiving of and meditating upon and planning and accomplishing other things. And the problem, Jeremiah says, isn't that we don't have God's laws. It's that we don't have God's heart. And the heart, whatever it desires, does have a way, for bitter or for worse, of accomplishing its desires. And so this powerful promise of this new covenant, God will not give us new laws, but will rather give us new hearts. And as for the sordid histories of the accomplished desires of sin-hardened hearts, I will forgive their iniquity, says the Lord. And I'll remember their sin no more. Speaking of hearts and their desires for better and for worse, King David is described in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. How profound is that? And as such, he was capable from the heart of singing to God and singing to our hearts some of the most sacred songs ever sung, like the song whose words of trust and prayer are the words, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Arguably the most cherished words found anywhere in the First Testament. But then, of course, David is also named as the singer and prayer of today's psalm, Psalm 51, which is profound and beautiful in its own way, and yet with this profound and beautiful psalm is birthed from is the deep darkness of heinous 
sin. Psalm 23 is commonly thought of as something David wrote when he was younger, when he was a shepherd, not a king. Psalm 51, on the other hand, comes from a little later in his life when he is king and actually has been now for a while. But now he's older, and so as where there was a day when he personally led his troops into battle, he he doesn't do that so much anymore. He, He stays home and he sends his troops into battle, and and maybe he's bored, or maybe he's on the wrong side of a midlife crisis not yet resolved, or maybe he's been thinking for a while lately that his, his first wife, Saul's daughter, Michael, the two of whom actually married for love, which was not the norm in those days, but he's been thinking lately she doesn't act like she feels about him the way she used to, and he thinks, he thinks it might actually go both ways. In any event, what happens, happens, and where it happened first, of course, was in his heart. As gazing down from the upper courtyard of his palace, perhaps nursing his second gin and tonic, he glances down at his neighbor's backyard and sees her, Bathsheba. Her husband, Uriah, is a soldier in David's army up at the front fighting one of David's fights. And so Bathsheba is alone, and she is bathing. And his chest and throat thickening with the desires of his heart. What he knows is that he wants her. And he's king. His heart absolutely gets what it wants. We need to be clear, there is no mutuality in this moment. This is blatant abuse of power and of this young woman who, whether she was complicit in this or not, doesn't matter. The power differential between the two defines that for us. Ugly story short. Bathsheba gets pregnant, sends word to David, who then tries to cover it up by commanding his general up at the front, Joab, to send Uriah home to give him a personal update of how things are going up there at the front. And when Uriah does that, David suggests suggests that he go home to his wife for for the night. But Uriah, it turns out, was an all-in, semper fi, ooh-rah kind of soldier who said that he would personally only enjoy the comforts and pleasures of home when his comrades in arms could do the same thing. David asked him to spend one more night, and the next night he tried actually pretty much the same plan all over again, except this time he made sure that Uriah's wine glass was constantly refilled, figuring that that would help the plan go according to plan. But Uriah was one of these rare individuals whose convictions and actions remained steadfast even when he wasn't sober. So again he said no to the opportunity to enjoy his wife's company and to sleep with her and slept alone on the porch instead, and that was reported to David. So David wrote what he said were strategic military instructions he wanted Uriah to deliver to Joab up at the front, and Uriah did, except these weren't about fighting that fight. They were rather David's explicit instructions that in this fighting, Uriah needed to die. And David was king. And so Uriah did die. And after a brief but suitable enough period of grieving, David, playing now the fully compassionate king next door, brought the poor young widow into his palace as another one of his wives. 
And then let's say, I'm guessing maybe seven or so months later, a little early, but this happens, Bathsheba and David's child was born. And it seemed that David had gotten away with his deceit. Except that in the end, nobody, nobody ever finally gets away with deceiving God. And so Nathan, the prophet of the Lord at that time, came to David in his palace and he laid his sins bare. This is the setting in which, says tradition, David penned Psalm 51. A psalm in which the first and clearest thing he says is that he was wrong. He has sinned. He expresses sorrow for his sins. I'm not talking about one of those so common but pathetic excuses for sorrow that you hear from politicians and others these days. Some version or another, I'm sorry someone somehow took offense at what I meant, what I said. No, 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 David's true sorrow is true sorrow and David's confession is true confession. True confession, someone else said, is the activity by which your mouth gives away what's hidden in your heart. David confessed that what was hidden in his heart were things he knew grieved God grievously. Things that offended God offensively. Things that were unfaithful to God faithlessly. But he confessed too, for he knew too in the depths of his heart that he personally didn't have it in him to be his own healer. He had all the powers of a king, but in this battle, with the sinful condition of his heart, he needed a higher power. God, he prayed, forgive my sin, wash the dirt and stink of it from me, and then, because beyond forgiveness, this is my only hope, create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. which Christians, of course, have sung at worship for way longer than just our lifetimes. Why? Because no worship is true worship unless what is spoken there is true. And no truth is the whole truth unless it includes truths that are true in the heart. And according to Christianity, when it sticks to its roots anyway, instead of dallying off to write pious and self-righteous fiction. There's no such thing in the church as a former sinner. There are only forgiven sinners who, when our hearts are at their best places, speak the truth, including the truths that do stink. Then to know them bathed in the sweet perfumed waters of God's grace. Then one day at a time and not on our own but with the higher power of the Holy Spirit beating with our heart, do what in fact we can do and are called to do to live toward all that will be when in the end God will make us and all brand new and clean to the bottom of our hearts and we will then always and ever do all that is ours to do, for it is written not on tablets, but on our hearts. 
But until then, we need all of David's psalms. And so one day at a time, as needed, which it always is, we confess, we rinse, we strive, we win some battles, we lose some others, darn it, we repeat, and maybe we even grow in the process. Amen.